Thank you, Justin. So good to see everyone tonight. We are going to finish up the life of Moses tonight that we started a few weeks ago. Uh, we've had, what, 11 or 12, 11 lessons, uh, including tonight. And um, it has been a, a good journey for us. Um, excuse me. There's a sneeze coming, so just be prepared. <clears throat> uh, it won't cooperate with me. Um, I, I want to give Wednesday nights a, a plug. Thank you for your attendance and your faithfulness. Those of you that watch online. Um, and, and by the way, if you're ever not able to be here, we don't live stream Wednesday night. But usually by tomorrow, I think. It's online and uh, you'll be able to watch it. Um, as Pastor Justin said, we've got a couple of Wednesday nights coming up um, for holiday celebration. And then, as our custom is, we take the last two Wednesday nights of the year off because that's when people begin to travel, a lot of holiday activities and so forth. We'll come back on, uh, let's see, on the 6th of January with... Uh, um, our New Year's prayer meeting. Um, there, there won't be a Bible study that night, but I will be presenting to you um, a list of things that I feel that the Lord is wanting us to really focus on in prayer. And uh, we'll begin the year on that first Wednesday night with um, a very special prayer meeting. And then we'll get back into our regular routine. Um, I, I also wanted to mention, uh, I think this will be in the announcements beginning this Sunday, but um, uh, on Sunday evening, January 3rd, the first Sunday of the year, we're going to have a Sunday night get together. And I want to go back to um, what I presented to you several years ago about the long emergency. Uh, I, I realize that the church uh, has changed since then. And uh, we've talked about it regularly. We, having our, we have our living prepared classes. But um, I want to take a night to just go back and just tell you how all of this began. And uh, in light of what this last year has been and what the next year may be, we want to talk about um, living prepared and, and the long emergency. So, Father, tonight um, we, we, uh, we certainly cannot end the life of Moses on a negative note. That's not what this message is. Um, but it's, it's a message of, of great sobriety. It's a message that we need to learn when we regard someone like Moses, someone who's bigger than life. Um, I, I don't think, maybe until we go to Israel, we, we don't understand how big the concept of Moses is in a society. And uh, obviously we learn in Sunday school and children's churches as, as we ones about this great man. Um, and I don't think it's easily done to overestimate his life. But Father, we also want to, we want to take a, a good sober look at the way his life ended. Now he was cared for was cared for because he was a special servant of God. He was cared for in that he was given a burial by God. And uh, uh, there's so many positive things we can say, but we want to look at this last episode of his life. And, and we, want to, we want to walk away with a great appreciation of him, but we also want to walk away with a sense of awe and wonder at your holiness. And we ask you to do this and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, what we're going to talk about tonight is the single most difficult episode in the life of Moses to me. Um, uh, it's Moses in a moment of anger uh, misses out on something he had been moving toward all of his life. Um, he was not allowed to go into the land, not allowed to lead Israel into the land. And um, the land is such an important concept to the psyche of Israel that it wasn't just that he lost an opportunity to, to go someplace. Um, it wasn't that he lost a great real estate deal. Uh, the land is so central 
to the thinking of biblical Jews and, uh, and, and Judaism, as well as ancient Israel. Um, it, it was so important that you weren't allowed to sell your land. That was God's gift to you, unless you sold it with the understanding that at the year of Jubilee, it would come back to your family. Every 50 years, everybody got their land back. If you bought a, a, a piece of land, um, uh, say, say 12 years before the year of Jubilee, you would only pay a quarter of the price of that land because you were only going to have it for a quarter of the time uh, before it went back to the original owners. And the land meant so much, so much to Israel. And Moses was able to look out a upon the land. He was able to see it, but God did not allow him to go in. So God showed great mercy. So uh, it's hard for me to understand. See, I love Marshall Dillon. I love Gunsmoke. But my favorite episodes are of Gunsmoke, see, if you don't understand this, especially the early episodes, Marshall Dillon's claim to fame is if you do wrong, you're going to be arrested. If you do wrong, you're going to go to jail. And there's a lot of episodes where I say, Matthew, that man needed killing. You know, those people needed to be run out of Kansas, you know. And my favorite episodes are those rare episodes every now and then where Marshall says, well, you might have broke the law, but I, I, I don't think you had a choice. And I cheer him on. I say, you know, you know, I call it grace, but it's not grace. It's just, it's just Hollywood. But um, I, I'm the kind of guy that I, you know, I, I hope I'm this way anyway. My default is toward mercy. And uh, I have trouble. Um, I, I don't mean it's, a, it's not a crisis of faith. It, it doesn't mean that I go to sleep at night bitter toward God. I just don't understand how Moses got ruled out of the promised land for what he did. Now, is God unfair? Of course not. Uh, am, 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 am I, you know, am I just ignorant and a pushover? I don't think so. But I, I tell you what I have come to believe. I've come to believe episodes like this really cause us to take a deeper look at the justice of God. And can I tell you this? Even mercy when God shows mercy, I think we misunderstand. We think mercy is God saying, okay, don't worry about it. Everybody messes up. But the only reason God is able to show mercy is that the full price for our failure, the full price has already been paid at the cross. Mercy, mercy is not saying, oh, it's no big deal. Yes, it's a big deal. It's a horribly big deal. But God has paid for that big deal in its fullness in the cross. And that's why he's the only one that can really administer mercy. That's why he's the only one that can really administer justice. <coughs> or he, um, Justin, is there any, oh, don't, don't worry about it then. There, there will be, okay, thank you. <coughs> um, God's the only one that can really execute vengeance because he's the only one that has the right to because he's paid the full price. So let's read the text and uh, kind of wrap our heads. Now we're jumping out of Exodus, <coughs> excuse me, over into Numbers. Then the Israelites, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month in the 40th year after leaving Egypt. And the people lived in Kadesh, Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation and they gathered together um, against Moses and Aaron. The people contended with Moses and said, if only we had perished when our brothers, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Um, uh, if only we had perished when our brothers perished in the plague before the Lord. What is it? Miraculous provision. <laughs> a, a raven flew down and gave me that bottle of water. <coughs> isn't, it, isn't it 
sad to say, man, I wish we had died from COVID than live to face 2021. That's what they were saying. That's what they were saying. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness to die here, we and our livestock? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And they fell on their faces before the Lord in prayer. Then the glory and brilliance of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock in front of them so that it will pour out its water. Now something similar to this had happened. He had struck the rock. And, um, and you know, a lot of liberal scholars say, well, you know, in the desert, there's a lot of uh, places where water is hidden from view by a thin layer of shale rock and you break the rock and you find some water. That's true, but it's usually a wa enough water for two or three people, uh, not the crowd that Israel had. Um, and, but God's about to do something greater. He says, just speak to the rock, just speak to it. Now, I want to tell you, at the most unusual times, usually when we are racked with fatigue, usually when we are at our lowest, God slips in with an opportunity to do something greater than He has ever done in our lives. And most of us don't recognize because we're tired. You know, we're tired. Um, in this way, you shall bring water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their livestock drink fresh water. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And Moses said to them, listen now, you rebels, must we bring water to you out of the rock? Now that's a very subtle thing. Were they rebels? Yes. Did he have a right to be mad at them? Yes, at least from the human perspective. But Moses does something, we're going to find out in a minute. God says, I gave you an opportunity to make me big in front of the people. But you turned it into something all about you. Must we, you know, Aaron and I are so tired of carrying this load. Uh, we're, we're so tired of being the go-betweens between you and God. And now are we going to have to bring water out of the rock again like we did before? Then Moses raised his hand in anger and with his rod, he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to the rock as the Lord had commanded. And the water poured out abundantly and the congregation and their livestock drank fresh water. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed or trusted me to treat me as holy. See, Peter tells us that we are to reverence the Lord in the presence of everyone. We're to live our life in such a way that whatever is done, glory goes to the Lord. You, you have not believed or trusted me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. You therefore shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now I want to say, Lord, don't let them come in, but let Moses go in. But these are the waters of Meribah, which mean contention or strife, where the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he showed himself holy among them. Um, years ago, I, I, have, I haven't heard anything from him in probably 25 years. I'm assuming uh, he's in heaven. Well, that doesn't mean like I'm wondering if he went to heaven the other place. I mean, I'm assuming he's passed on to his, to his reward in heaven. But Judson Cornwall was a fabulous preacher uh, among charismatics in the, in the 60s and 70s uh, especially. And he wrote a book called From uh, Incense to Insurrection. From Incense to Insurrection. And he talked about how easy it is for the people of God to go from worship, that was incense, to rebellion and the cover had a hand that was lifted in praise to God like this. And it shows the hand moving from a hand lifted to praise into this. And Cornwall, among other 
great observations, said we need to never underestimate, don't be proud of ourselves for worshiping because it's just the flexing of a few tendons and muscles to go from incense to insurrection. And that's what had irritated Moses. He'd had to deal with it all of these years. Now let's talk about the remnant and the rabble. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Pastor, I'm glad you're finally going to talk more about the rabble because I've got a lot of rabble in my life and I'd like for you to deal with them. Um, let, me, let me give you four statements that sound like cliches, but they sound like cliches because they're said a lot, but they're said a lot because they're true. And the danger of truth that is recognized is that it can lose its cutting edge if we don't treat those statements with the dignity they deserve. Here's number one, light always attracts bugs. You turn on your porch light, it's great, everybody can see, but what have you got? You got bugs. You've got strange creatures that are attracted to the light unless you get a bug light or something. But um, we, that has to do with spiritual climate and the fact of the matter is that whenever a church or a family or even a person is a light for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to attract people who aren't really coming to the Lord. They're coming to what they sense something. They don't know what it is or they may think it's God, but their attraction is not to Jesus. Their attraction is to a spiritual commotion that is touching the deep part of their life. That's why people can come to church and never give their heart to Jesus. All they do is the inner man is drawn to the commotion, to the stirring, to the light. But uh, um, th there's never any real hunger for Jesus. So you've got, that's why you've got to understand around everything that is spiritual, around every church, uh, around every pair of uh, church ministry, there are going to be people that are not sincere. There are going to be people that you might even call hypocrites. There are going to be people that every time you meet them, you'll wonder why in the name of all that is holy, do they even come to church? Because it's because light always attracts bugs. It provides warmth. It provides guidance. It provides a sense of home. It provides security. But all of that, it also attracts bugs. Here's number two. The genuine always invites the counterfeit. Now that doesn't mean we should do away with the genuine. It, it means that we need to understand if something is genuine, it invites counterfeit. And um, it, 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 if I can say this, the genuine actually gives something of a covering to the counterfeit. It's not intentional. The, the genuine isn't endorsing the counterfeit, but the genuine actually provides a sense of covering. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, if I were to say to everybody, hey, I want you all to go get supper after we dismiss, and I've got two uh, $8 bills for everybody that wants a, to get a couple of them, come and go buy your supper. Nobody's going to come. Well, you might come up just for the oddity, but nobody here would think, man, I've got $16 I didn't have when I came in. What you got, and you know it, is something that's counterfeit. That's, that doesn't even qualify as counterfeit. That's a novelty. That's a novelty. Uh, because nobody puts any value on the $8 bill. But if I say I've got a $20 bill for everyone, that could be counterfeit. And the reason we honor that $20 bill when we wouldn't honor the $8 bill is because the $20 bill looks enough like the real thing that it gives it some credibility. So I don't know, I don't mean to sound like I'm talking in circles, but not only do you need to understand that light attracts bugs, you need to understand that the reason we have counterfeit is because we have the real. And, and the fact that we have the real invites the production of the counterfeit. Um, how, do, how do we handle that? How do we deal with, with the counterfeit? Well, you don't, you don't write off the real. Um, you, you begin to study the real. You begin to, to know the real. Uh, I've heard this from several sources that banks uh, have sent their, uh, 
their, their tellers to, to training, uh, the, the, uh, the Secret Service, which is, I know we think of the Secret Service taking care of the president and others, but they're also responsible for dealing with counterfeiting. And the way they are trained to detect counterfeit is not to study the counterfeit, it's to study the genuine. And if you are so familiar with the genuine that a, a, a counterfeit stands out for what it is, you, you value the, the genuine more. And churches have written off, that's, you know, Paul said to, to Timothy, don't forbid speaking in tongues. Don't forbid prophesying. Don't despise prophecies. I used to wonder as a young Pentecostal preacher, why in the world would Paul have to tell a Pentecostal preacher, which all the New Testament preachers were, why would he have to tell them to don't despise prophecy and, and, and don't forbid to speak in tongues? It's because it was such a, such a messy thing to have counterfeit prophets and counterfeit tongues. And I'll, I'll tell you this, it's, it's far easier to just say none of this than to shepherd this. I mean, I say this, I mean, whatever this is. And... Um, uh, but what we have to do is not write off the counterfeit. We, what we have to do is teach the genuine. I mean, not write off the genuine. We have to teach the genuine and make people understand the genuine that when counterfeit rises up, they'll detect it right away. Okay, that's the second thing. Here's the third thing. Oh, this is in your notes, isn't it? Okay, good, good, good. Um, the third thing is that the wheat always matures with the tares. Now, that was a very frustrating because the way tares were generally dealt with, if tares ever got mixed in with the wheat, what generally was done is the crop was just, was just done away with. It was burned or plowed over because you couldn't tell the wheat from the tares until they were fully grown. And you've had an entire growing season where the false is taking the nourishment from the real. And uh, the, the tares, it was called darnel, and I'm, I don't mean to be profane when I say this, it wasn't used as, as bad language, but it was called bastard wheat. It wasn't, it looked like wheat. The, even when it blossomed and the grains came to the head, it still looked like wheat. It wasn't until they reached full maturity that the wheat was generally a golden cover, color. Um, and the, the Darnell would turn a, a deep uh, blue or black. That's the only way you could, it's at the time of maturity and the fruit. And um, that's why in that parable that, that Jesus told, uh, he said, this is the way the kingdom is. He said, it's like a man that went and planted wheat in his field. And then they realized probably the more seasoned eyes because it, as it grows, it, it begins, there's some subtle differences that the, 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 the average eye wouldn't catch. And they begin to understand that there was uh, tares sowed with the wheat. And Jesus said, there will come a time when you understand an enemy has done this. Uh, and that tells us that the enemy is always putting wheat in danger of growing up with tares uh, to make the work harder. The goal is to destroy the crop. And um, uh, there's always going to be this attempt by the enemy to, to destroy. And here's the fourth thing that I want you to remember. A Moses always deals with a Korah. Uh, this, is, this, is really, this is really a tough thing because um, Sometimes you have issues with somebody just because it's just a personality clash. It's, it's not that either of you are bad or evil. It's just personalities clash. And that's a hard thing to navigate through sometimes. But you just do it. You do it. Personality differences. You know, you might not invite them over for Thanksgiving dinner, but you learn how to, how to, to work. You, you, clashing personalities just work together. But a Korah is not somebody that's a personality clash. A Korah is not somebody that's like uh, Cousin Eddie that shows up, you know, at Christmas. Korah is the kind of person that if they had their way, they wouldn't think twice about destroying you to profit themselves. And the worst kind of Korahs would be glad to destroy you just for the sake of destroying you. 
I have a, a, a preacher friend. Now this one I know is in heaven now, so I, I, no, no doubt about his destiny. But uh, uh, he was involved in a lawsuit over ministry one time, and it was between him and an internationally known Christian personality. And this personality, I mean, he, he didn't preach about this. He didn't tell about this, but I knew about it. This nationally, internationally known personality said, I am going to destroy you. They got into an argument about something. He said, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to take everything you've got, and I'm going to do everything in my power to be sure that your, that your uh, children never have anything. Now, that's, that's a Korah. That's a core. That's somebody that just says, I'm going to destroy you and everything that you stand for. And a lot of times we don't know how to deal with cores, And it's a tough thing to know how to deal with. Some Bible scholars wonder if Paul's thorn in the flesh. Some think it was a physical thing. Some think it might have been something else. All we know is that it was a, a messenger from Satan. And it, it, it was something that God would not remove from his life. Um, I think I, there's all kinds of theories. I think the two biggest theories um, are, are, are the most probable theories. I, I think it could have been a physical infirmity. Or the second thing is some believe that it was um, a, a person that opposed him. Um, like Alexander the coppersmith or somebody like that, that seemed to just be pursuing Paul all of his life. If you saw the movie, Paul, an apostle of Christ, they view it as his memories of the persecution and the Christians whose lives he had taken. We don't know what it was, but Moses, uh, Moses found that there were always going to be people issues. Now, Let's talk about when Moses snapped. The name of the lesson tonight is snapped. Um, there are, I, 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 my premise, this is, this is my premise. My premise, and I don't, I'm, I'm not anti-Moses. I'm not saying a better man could have done a better job. Moses is Moses, and you don't mess with the big M, you know. Uh, I, I have the utmost uh, regard for Moses. But I think the more we study, and the more you study dominant personalities, sometimes, sometimes um, it's hard to tell the difference between an anointing and a personality. And sometimes I've seen this where a man or a woman has an overwhelming personality, and it's hard to distinguish that overwhelming personality from an intense anointing that they have. And uh, one of the toughest things that I've had to deal with in my life, um, and what I mean, not that I've been mistreated, I'm saying I just don't understand and I can't get a good grip on it, is how somebody can be so phenomenally used of the Lord and then have such glaring personality glitches. I don't think Moses had a glaring personality glitch, but I do think Moses had a problem with anger. I think it was something that showed up early in his life. I think it was something that pursued him to the end of his life. And that may give us a clue, if I'm right, that may give us a clue as to why God dealt with it uh, so severely at the end of his life. It, 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 if we view it as not as Moses having a bad Tuesday, but if we view it as Moses caving into the same tendency over and over and over again during his 120 years or so on earth. Um, I think it was Charles Swindoll said there are, there are about five levels of anger. He said it goes from mild irritation to rage. Um, I want to tell you these, these levels are not easily defined and uh, there, there are measured differences. What I mean by that is mild irritation in one person, you might not even know they're irritated. But in the other person, you see little veins sticking up in their forehead. They might not do anything, so, but you can tell they're irritated. Um, somebody might be uh, in rage with this type of personality, and you may not understand they're in rage until they, they just snap and do something crazy. Whereas the other person is just an explosive volcano. Uh, anger is something that I think we need 
to really take a look at. Um, the Bible says that the, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Um, you know, I had, I had somebody talk. I, it was not at this church. It was in another church. I asked him to step off the board. I said, I, I, said, I, have, to, I have to bury dead bodies every time I give you something to do. I said, I need you to just step off the board so you can get a grip on this. And uh, he said, well, Pastor, I, I know I get mad, but, and I get mad quick, but it's over quick. And I said, yeah, I said, you've just described a hand grenade, you know. Uh, I said, the fact that it's over quick doesn't mean it's okay. Um, the first level of anger, and again, it differs from person to person, is just mild irritation. And that could be something as simple as somebody pulling out in front of us or, you know, raising a teenager and the teenager, you know, how many of you dads know it's far easier to just take the garbage out than teach a teenager to take the garbage out? It's just easier to just take the garbage out, you know. And there's mild irritation, but uh, all that does is just, you know, a, you know, maybe a moment of exasperation. But that, then it, that, that has to do with an inconvenience. An indignation generally has to do with a sense of being insulted, dishonored, or disrespected. Um, uh, my, uh, an irritation is just, eh, you know. But an indignation generally finds itself saying things like, I deserve better than this. I am not going to be disrespected by my wife. I'm not going to have my child talk to me this way. Um, you're indignant. Your emotions are flared up because I have been done wrong. Okay. Now, how's that different than getting mad at somebody who pulls out in front of you? Well, most of the time we realize, even though we call them stupid, we don't think they're stupid. We just, they didn't see us. They weren't being cautious. And you forget about it as soon as you pass them and, and wave to them. But um, indignation, indignation is different. Indignation, and, and I, I don't do that, and I hope you don't either. Indignation um, is, is an emotional thing. I am being dishonored. I am being disrespected. Now, wrath has to do with the idea of retribution, okay? It's not just that I'm inconvenienced. It's not even that I'm insulted. I'm going to set things right. I am going to set things right. Uh, the perfect picture of wrath is John Wayne in some of his cowboy movies where he says, I will not be spoken ill of. I will not be pushed around. I will not be lied to. He's saying, you're not going to treat me this way. And boy, we love it. And, you know, we used to pay 75 cents to go to the movie to see John Wayne do what we only dreamed of doing when people mistreated us. That's a good definition of wrath. In the classic sense, wrath is, is retribution. When we read about the wrath of God, it's not God having a temper tantrum. It's not God saying, I'll show you. It's God saying, I'm going to set things right. Wrath is actually used in good senses as well as bad senses in classic literature. The wrath of God is not God losing it. The wrath of God is setting everything right. It's retribution. Now, when you get to fury and rage, um, uh, I, think, I think fury speaks of intensity, uh, where rage speaks of a lack of control. And uh, all of this is referred to as anger, whether it's mild irritation or, or rage that can result in murder or manslaughter. We have to understand what makes us react the way we react. We need to learn to diffuse situations with people. And just as importantly, we need to learn to diffuse situations within ourselves. So we get to the question, was anger a problem for Moses? Um, well, let's go back to when he was a young man. Now Moses was, Moses was, a, was a, a powerful figure 
And we don't know if it was just physical. We don't know if it was personality. We do know this from the writings of Josephus. We know that Moses led the Egyptian army in two wars against the Ethiopians. And he was a war hero before he ever went into the wilderness fleeing for his life. Uh, and you remember he gets out there and he fights off uh, shepherds that are not behaving as gentlemen ought to behave. Moses was a pretty substantial fellow. And what got him in trouble to begin with is trying to set things right with anger. And, you know, he ended up killing an Egyptian. Uh, people didn't understand this during the last year when we've tried to deal with all that's going on in America. We're, we're, but what we tried to say and, and, and what I'm continuing to try to say is we've got to be careful that we don't let anger become our modus operandi to deal with someone else's anger. You see, uh, David had to learn, I've got a chance to take the life of Saul twice, but my anger can't work the purposes of God. And uh, I think that's what the church, I don't mean us, but I mean the church world. I think the church world fairly well failed at that in 2020. We became people driven by anger just as much as any other group was driven. And, um, and, and it, we, we didn't fare well taking that approach. So Moses had that incident when he was dealing with Egyptian cruelty. Um, when he's coming down out of the mountain, I'll tell you something else uh, anger will do. Anger will cause you to lose sight of the holy. He had the tablets. Can you imagine the honor of, of having two hand-carved, hand-written tablets that you're holding close to your breast, and then because someone makes you mad, you destroy the tablets? Well, we, you know, Cecil B. DeMille and the Ten Commandments made it look like holy wrath and holy indignation. And maybe it was, but I just, I just wish Moses had put something down, laid them down and picked up something else to throw. Um, uh, whenever anger is out of control, not only do we dishonor the lives of other people, but we dishonor holy things. And that's why, um, that's why when I was in a business, my first business meeting at a church where I was pastor, um, it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful church, but they were they were they had some pretty deep division. Um, I I was elected pastor with like seventy percent of the vote, and normally I would not even I would not even consider going to a church where I only got seventy percent of the vote. Um, you know, you say, well, boy, you can be president with fifty percent of the vote. That's the difference between a nation and a church. You know, you you don't you don't want to pastor a church where three out of ten people are against you. You know. But I, I really felt like it was the Lord, and, and I went there, and it was, a, it was a good experience for us, and God blessed us, and we had phenomenal growth. But at the, at the first business meeting, they said, uh, Pastor, we just want to tell you, we've taken care, we've got the, the song books out. And um, I didn't know what they were talking about. My, my only thought was, well, they needed the backs of the pews to put ballots or something. I, didn't, I said, what are, what are you talking about? He, they said, you haven't heard. I said, I guess not. And they said, oh, we had the police come out because members started throwing hymnals at each other uh, in one of our business meetings. And I said, no. I said, well, I'm glad you took the books out. That's good to know. Um, it's easy to lose sight of the holy. What happened when they offered uh, sacrifices and they made the golden calf? Moses ground, had them grind the golden calf up into powder, put it in the water. I don't know how he did this. I don't know how he did this. But hundreds of thousands of people, and if you include the children, possibly as many as two and a half, three million people, he makes them drink that water. Now, you know... If I'm part of a crowd of two and a half million, I don't know that there's anybody big enough to make me drink that water. But Moses did. He, he, he either had a supernatural anointing upon him or such a rage that they said it's better to drink the, the water. I don't know. 
Numbers 20, we see him, he's angry with the people. Now, I, I, I can understand. It, he, he's had this, and he's been there 40 years dealing with this. And um, now they're, they're complaining again, and it's like he is seething with anger. But I wish James had been there to remind Moses. And, and again, I'm not faulting Moses. He, he's shown better restraint than I have at times. But James 1, 19 and 20 says that all of us need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? That's the verse we talked about earlier. Because the wrath of man does not produce the kind of behavior God is looking for. Um, so what are the lessons we learn before Justin comes to lead us in prayer tonight. What are the lessons from this time out, if you want to call it that? Um, I think there are four, and I think every one of them could be a sermon unto themselves. Um, I don't know that I have the time to really go in and explain what I mean by this first one. But disobedience has its roots in unbelief. Now, you may say, well, pastor, I've disobeyed God and I knew I was disobeying God and I believe everything he said about my sin and all of that. I, that's why it's hard for us to grasp this when I say disobedience has its roots in unbelief. Biblical belief is not just intellectual. Um, it, it has to be intellectual. But biblical belief is always an action. That's why we're told uh, to love the Lord our God with all of our strength, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. Um, love is not something that you just feel. You do feel it. But whether it's faith or love or perseverance or patience, in the Bible sense, it's not just an intellectual or even emotional feeling. It must translate into action. You know, when he says, husbands, love your wives, he, he's not saying have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Um, because there are, times, there are times when it's easy to have a warm, fuzzy feeling. And then there are times it's not easy to have a warm, fuzzy feeling. But husbands are to always love their wives. What was he saying? He was saying, always treat your wives the way they ought to be treated. That's how you love your wife. Not just a feeling, but an action. Um, so whenever I disobey, it's not that I don't believe. Maybe, uh, maybe unbelief is a poor word here. Maybe I should say insufficient belief or whatever. But when I disobey God, there's something in the equation I'm not taking seriously. There's something I'm not taking seriously. Seriously, you know, I used to tell one of my children, you know, a lot of times a strong-willed child indicates a, a powerful child, and it can be turned for good, not not just rebellion. But I'd say, you know, you know, don't don't touch that baby, you know, and he'd look at me and he'd lock eyes, and I'd see him do this, and you know, if I said don't touch the top of the table, you know, he'd look at me. And then at last minute, he'd do this. Because in his little mind, if his fingers didn't touch it, he hadn't touched it. And I, I, I couldn't help but laugh sometimes. But I know, I'll tell you what was going on. He knew that what I said was the rule. But he didn't believe it enough to just walk away. He had to say, I'm going to see how far I could push this. So that's why I say disbelief has its roots in unbelief, or disobedience has its roots in unbelief. It doesn't mean that you don't believe what God says about something. It's that you don't believe it enough. Here's number two. Disobedience, especially public disobedience, dishonors God and diminishes His glory in the eyes of others. God said, Moses, it wasn't just that you did wrong, but you had a chance to treat me as holy and you didn't. And God doesn't have insecurity issues. 
when God says I'm a jealous God, it's because he has a right to be jealous. When God says worship me, see, if I told you to worship me, you'd say, Pastor, I love you. I'm not going to worship you, you know. And that would be a natural and understandable response because I don't deserve to be worshiped. But God says worship me because he does deserve to be worshiped. And he says, you didn't treat me as holy. And I, I think maybe the best way I can explain this, uh, you know how it is when you're part of a family and you know the best about each other and you know the worst about each other, you know each other's weaknesses, you know each other's strengths. Um, I, I grew up in a home where uh, my, both my parents were, were good about this. Now, this doesn't mean they never had words or issues, but um, out in public, I've never seen, I never saw my mother and daddy dishonor or disrespect each other in the presence of someone else. Now, they might have a, a, a come to Jesus meeting afterwards, but I, I never saw my mother throw my daddy under the bus over something even when she knew she had a golden opportunity to. I've never seen my dad sacrifice his wife to be, uh, you know, to get laughs from somebody or something. They, they, they were always very protective of each other. And um, it, it was not a rule where it said you don't do this or you don't do that. But they lived this way. You don't dishonor those you love to anyone else. Um, my parents, I've, I've had one of them back the other when I was growing up, uh, something that I, I had done wrong or wasn't allowed to do. And they, it's funny to me, they never disagreed. They were always, yep, your mom's right. Yep, your dad's right. And until one time I heard them arguing, one of them said, you can't do that to that boy. You know, they were arguing. They disagreed over the punishment and over the decision. Um, uh, but they were never going to do that in front of me. God says, Moses, you had a chance to make my name bright in the, in the eyes of people. And it wasn't just God saying, I need to be glorified. You've got a chance to make me what, you've got a chance to help these people see me the way I am. But you didn't do it. And uh, God says, that's, that's, um, has to be dealt with disobedience. Number three, punishment for disobedience often seems disproportionate to human reasoning. Um, now we know, we know, we know that God is just and God is right. But why are there moments when God seems to be unreasonable? Lord, look at Moses' track record. Give the man a break. At least give him a summer in Canaan. Lord, why would you deal with a man who was transporting the ark and when the oxen stumbles, he puts forth his hand? Why do you snuff a man's life out for trying to keep the ark from stumbling over. And we say things like, well, they weren't transporting it right. They were showing disrespect. Maybe, but I don't know. Lord, why did you take the life of Ananias and Sapphira when I've known dozens of people, preachers and congregants alike, that have mishandled the Lord's money and lied about it, and you let them live? Why didn't you let Ananias and Sapphira live? And after years of study and prayer and waiting on God, I have an answer. I really do. I have an answer. And it's, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's my answer. I don't know. But I know this. When we get to heaven and we go to the museum and look up Ananias and Sapphira's story, from God's perspective, we will see that that was the best thing he could do. Uzzah touching the ark or the, the ox cart, that was the best thing God could do. And when we get there and see things from his perspective, we will say, oh God, you were so good to Moses. You were so good to Moses. 
I don't know. My human mind says if God had allowed, you know, Moses never seemed to get a grip on his, his, his anger. And if God had allowed it to go on, he could have had a terminal failure in the, in the land. I don't know. But we trust. But we trust. And here's the last thing I want to share with you. Disobedience results in consequences and often severe ones. Often severe ones. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you that the way God deals with our failures will, will never seem, well not never, will sometimes seem unfair to us. It will seem unfair to us, but we know that God can be trusted. But here's the last thing I want to share with you. If God shows you mercy, you're not Ananias and Sapphira. You're, 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 you're Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, where Peter said, you know, you perish and go to hell, take your money with you, is what Peter said. For you are in the bond of iniquity and, and you, are, you are still a slave to uh, things that are offensive to God. And Simon, man, why didn't God kill him? But what happened, Simon said, oh, pray for me. Pray for me that it will not be as you've said. Ask the Lord to show me mercy. And God did. God showed him mercy. So what, what do we do? We understand that if God shows us mercy, that should not give us clearance for further misbehaving. He shows us mercy because of the cross. I, I've taught you this, and, and I probably don't need to, to teach the Wednesday night crowd this over again. But when we confess our sins, I told you it's, it's two Greek words. Homo, it's homo logeo, and homo means the same. Uh, logeo means the word or saying. To confess, homo logeo, means that I say the same thing about my sin that God says. Confessing my sins is not, okay, Lord, I did it. That, that's probably part of it. But confessing my sins is I say the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. And I think that opens the door for mercy when, when we agree with God and what he said. Justin's going to come and lead us in prayer, but I want to leave this with you <coughs> tonight. And I'm going to slip out. We're, we're spread thin tonight. Got a couple of things going. But... Um, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't think, if, you, if you're not right with God, don't think that the mercy you've been shown is God being unsure or unwilling to deal with your sin. The scripture says the goodness of God leads you to repentance. It's God's mercy that leads you to repentance. And it may be that you've gotten away with what you've gotten away with because the Lord is giving you room to repent. Don't think you've hoodwinked him. Don't think you've gotten away with it. That's a horrible thing. Uh, see, Pastor Justin or one of the other pastors before you leave tonight, if you want to give your life to the Lord, if you're watching online, call the church. Um, it's 803 798 4488, 803-798-4488. And if, um, I don't know when you'll be watching it, if it's after, after hours, leave a message and we will call you back and we'll help you know how to follow uh, the Lord in this walk with him. I love you and God bless you. Moses, we respect you, we salute you and God gave you such a beautiful burial and uh, we look forward to seeing him on the other side. Justin.